Hello and welcome to Country Strike, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here just south of Kendall alongside the A591 in the car park of one of Cumbria's most recognised and most loved farms, Low Sizer Farm, with its accompanying Low Sizer Barn, Shop and Tea Room, in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hi, Mark. Oh, hello, David. I love wandering around farms. It was always my special holiday, having spent the first 40 years of my life working on a farm, to walk over somebody else's farm. We visit farms fairly regularly on Country Stride, don't we? We've been to James Rebanks. Uh, most recently, we were at Strictly, not too far away from here. It's an agricultural county that we live in here it plays a huge part in the heritage and culture of Cumbria and the lakes. Yeah very much so and this is what makes Cumbria so special you know we've got wonderful landscapes but it's an agricultural landscape what you're looking at. I get a great deal of joy listening to farmers Mm. uh, and, and seeing how they react to the place. There's a commonality in farming communities of a shared respect. Which is all an introduction to today's podcast Some listeners may know that for the last year approximately, the big project that I've been working on is a new book called 40 Farms, Conversations About Change in the Landscapes of Cumbria. As the title suggests, the author, a farmer from just north of here called Amy Bateman, has visited 40 farms around the county, all very different farms, and had very honest conversations about farming in Cumbria at this moment of profound change. And I mean, there's so much going on at the moment, Mark. There's a transition from what they call the basic payments, which is... EU funding. EU funding that's been the lifeblood of so many farm businesses for, for decades now. They're coming to an end. They're being phased out. A new system of payments, uh, environmental land management scheme, ELMS payments, are on the horizon, but they're not confirmed yet. There's a lot of confusion. We've had all these crises related to uh, the rising costs of feed. This is partly caused by the the war in Ukraine. Fertiliser prices have gone through the roof. And then COVID, the impact on society that that's had, all adds to the tension in the whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you've had bird flu. You had a crisis relating to personnel in the in the food sector as well, which hasn't gone away at all. So you've got all these circling storm clouds, but at the same time, you've got this group of very resilient entrepreneurial farmers who are thinking about a positive future and coming up with so many different routes through I guess the kind of mazes lying before us and it's been a wonderful project to work on fascinating it is well when you think that Wordsworth saw an end to hill farming he got it wrong yeah I think farmers are about the most resilient part of society the human race survives because of its food makers yeah from the iron age to the present day the food makers have made it happen there's this constant theme of reinvention and as somebody who runs a small business myself I was really interested in the kind of entrepreneurship on display here Alison uh, who we're going to speak to later on today has this lovely quote about how actually if you grow up on a farm and you see all those changes in the in the seasons you're used to change that's in your lifeblood growing up and of course 
that equips you in a very specific kind of way. At a time of global change, of climate change, the pressure on our water supplies at the moment, there's all of these interesting factors that all meet in farming. When you think that farming keeps going despite it all, and we don't want to give the impression that there is no stopping point to farming, but the farmers keep forging forward. They have a positivity that many in society cannot grasp, perhaps. And I hope today's podcast will help to reveal some element of that sense of commitment to food production and the well-being of a landscape. And we've got three fabulous guests today, Mark. Uh, Talk us through who we will be meeting. We have Amy Bateman, a local farmer, close to Kendall. She's a photographer and wrote the book. And we have Alison and Richard Park, who are integral to this low-sizer barn farm business. And we're just going to go on a bit of a wander around, see some elements of this wonderful uh, National Trust farm, actually. And we'll talk all things Cumbrian farming. I scooted down the M6 through a squall of showers, turned back up the A591 and came to this majestic little farm, low size of farm, which is just off the slip road of the busy road, ringing in my ears as I'm speaking, but I'm actually in the company of Amy Bateman. Amy, could you give us a little bit of a feel for where you come from and what's led you into farming world? Yes, Mark. Um, I actually grew up in Yorkshire. My grandparents farmed, uh, but we never did. And then moved down to London after graduating. Got sick of where my money went. My flatmate and I had a competition to see who could get a job in Cumbria, because that's where we wanted to live. And she came back the next day with a transfer. So uh, within four weeks, we'd made the decision to pack up a move, book the removals, and I got a job at the Lancaster Infirmary. And literally four weeks, we turned our life around. Two years later, after settling in Kendall, I met my husband, Colin, moved to the farm, and the rest is definitely history. Colin, and your farm, where is it located from where we are now? Uh, we're not far, we're about 20 minutes away from Lowsizer here. We farm just on the outside of Kendall, near where the wind farm is, at Junction 37, the Sedber turn-off. Uh, we farm up onto Lamrig Fell. We've got quite a generous farm, it's 900 acres, we own it beef and sheep farm and uh, yeah it keeps us out of trouble. So could you give us a brief intro into the book that you've been involved with and the whole project that surrounds it? So uh, yeah well I gave up physio uh, to look after the kids and ended up picking a camera and that's gone from strength to strength until we're in a position now where we've brought this book out called 40 Farms. It's really quite an important book full of stories that really need to be told It's conversations about change, so we're looking forwards, really, looking at the future and the changes that we're facing in farming down the road, be it political, financial, the pressure on the landscapes. Um, So we're discussing an awful lot of different subjects in one book, covering quite a wide range of different farms, very diverse farms within the book, because Cumbria, as you know, Mark, is such a diverse landscape from the high peaks to the salt marsh lands. And we wanted to tell all the stories and focus on those farmers who are quite progressive, pushing the boundaries, looking at the future. 
taking the challenges down the line as opportunities and hoping to try and make a difference to how food is produced in our country. And of course, being a photographer, these stories are told in pictures. Well, talking about progressive farmers, we are in the company of Alison and Richard, who are so very much involved with the low-sizer farm business in all its ramifications. Uh, Alison, can you give me a little bit of a feel for what you are doing? I run the diversified side of the dairy farm. My brother Richard farms and I look after the farm shop, cafe and farm trail side of what we have here. We've uh, three generations uh, involved. Our parents have been trying to retire for quite a long time and we've managed to get a couple of our children involved as well. But we also have the fantastic help of 48 full and part-time employees. We are a year-round business with milk because we're a dairy farm being our main product. Uh, we sell ice cream, cheese and our own organic raw milk. Plus, we have fantastic produce from around the county and the surrounding counties mainly. We have over 70 local and regional suppliers. And we're all about telling the story of where food comes from and trying to give an insight into what it actually takes to get food onto people's plates. And Richard, I'll turn to you. Uh, could you give us a bit of a feel for what the farming actually is? Yeah, the farms is uh, mainly tenanted uh, from the National Trust. Uh, it's about 400 acres. Uh, we're on a AHA tenancy, which is this three-generation tenancy. I'm the second generation, so we very much take the long view. We farm uh, 170 crossbred dairy cows. Uh, we have a flock of 150 sheep. We also have another diversification we opened a couple of years ago, which is the caravan and campsite that my wife, uh, Judith, runs. So give us a little bit of a feel for where we're actually going to wander to get the sense of this whole structure of this farm. We've a couple of hours, so we won't go too far. So we'll, we'll walk away from the dual carriage and head down towards the River Kent along one of the cow tracks, and we'll have a look at some of our herbal lays, and then we'll uh, reach the paddock where the dairy cows are grazing. Well, it'd be nice to get away from the tinnitus of that road, anyway. We've come down behind the farmhouse and through the farm buildings with the generator making a very distinct sound there, so clearly you're in a, a working farm in many respects. We've come down a track uh, with a great wooded landscape of pastures, and I could see the Middleton Fells, I could see the Helm uh, at Scout Hill over there to the uh, southeast. This reminds me of uh, Arthur Robinson's country, but we can come to that because he described this setting, this rolling landscape. Amy, can you give me a bit of a feel about working with nature? Yeah, I think one of the main themes that's come out very strong throughout the whole of the book is that there are hundreds of farms and many in the book that are actually already farming with nature quite quietly getting on doing their thing when we say farming with nature it's literally that it's it's farming alongside nature not at the detriment of nature and encouraging increased diversity in these ecological habitats that we can see all around us here mark mm. from the extra thick hedgerows 
building riparian strips which are helpful to keep the cattle and livestock out of the, the rivers and the streams and increase the ecological habitats there for wildlife. They also help build wildlife corridors between different parts of the farms. We've got lots and lots of ponds being built, even at our feet where we are here at Lausizer. Um, we can see with Richard's field here with this quite fabulous herbal lay. And one of the classic examples of working with nature uh, beside me is quite a young hedge and quite a diverse one at that. Richard, can you tell us something about that? Yeah, well, these hedges are very much part of the, of the landscape down here. We do have some stone walls, but it is mainly, a, mainly hedges on a lowland pasture. We changed the way we manage the hedges. A uh, bit of inspiration from James Robinson over at uh, Strictly, who's actually a, a distant relation of mine. Aren't we all related in farming? But, um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we went on a visit there. I was quite inspired with just the scale of the, the size of the hedges and the benefits that those can bring to the wider farming system. So what we did three years ago, we, we stopped trimming all our internal hedges with the flail cutter and uh, now we're really seeing the benefits. As we stand here, we've got rose hips, we've got elderberries, we've got blackberries, thistles that we leave uh, and so they've all seeded. A lot of habitat for nesting birds in the spring, a lot of feed for uh, birds overwintering fantastic corridors for animals to uh, move around uh, safely and yeah I'm really pleased that it does involve a bit more work though we've got to lay these hedges probably every 15 to 20 years but I always enjoy that job it gets you out of the farmyard in the winter and it's a skilled job it's mentally taxing you know working out where to lay everything and uh, you get to see the results uh, you know the next spring make sure everything's living and then within a year or two we're back up to this sort of size that we are now. Rewinding in time Alison can you give us a, a feel for what got the business going where did you start from? My mum and my dad grew up on farms in the South Lakes but their first tenancy was uh, a very rundown farm in North Lancashire which um, they brought on from nothing to be a successful dairy farm and they decided at some point that because they were in partnership with my dad's brother it was time to seek a larger farm because it wasn't going to be enough to support two possibly three families should the next generation show an interest so they looked all around for tenancies and uh, were very pleased to get this farm at low size uh, on a three generation tenancy from the national trust it was like coming back home but within just four years of them taking on the tenancy and um, having quite big ambitions for growing the herd size and farming actually quite intensively as was the pressure we could say in the early 80s milk quotas came in so that limited the uh, amount of milk that the farm could produce and that meant that all my parents carefully costed business plan was just thrown into the deep water so being entrepreneurial types they looked around at what other opportunities the farm could offer. And we'd come from a quite an isolated, uh, quiet, backwater, single-track road farm to this farm right next to the main archery coming out of the Lake District. So what was originally um, a bit of an impediment and a bit of uh, an intrusive noise, they started to think we could benefit from all those 
passing cars. So one of the early enterprises was Pick Your Own Strawberries. Richard was agricultural college down south and they had these Pick Your Own farms where people could come onto farm and pick soft fruit and he decided he would uh, research that as his dissertation at college and so it grew from there. He came back, strawberries were planted and for quite a few years we were a very successful pick-your-own enterprise and we still have people coming to the farm now saying, oh, I used to pick strawberries here, can we still? <laughs> strawberries back then were something that were only really available in the in the summer, you know, they weren't available year-round like they are now. So people sort of look forward to the strawberry season and it was, Wimbledon was sort of the usual point at which, you know, the season started. It was a pretty steep learning curve, you know, we, our background was in looking after milking cows and the agronomy of growing strawberries was uh, fairly complex. So me, me sort of training my national diploma in agriculture down in Bedfordshire, quite a lot of that stuff that I learned actually came in quite useful. And from there, people would ask from the little hut where they weighed. We should have weighed them when they went into the field as well as when they came out again. But They're bloated. From there, they'd say, well, I haven't got time to pick. Can I, can I buy some ready-picked? Uh, where's the toilet? Can I get a cup of tea? And do you sell cream to go with these when I take them home? And so from there... Um, we realised, because the whole family was involved, of course we were, that there was uh, an opportunity for a bit more farm retailing, selling the food that we were growing and producing. And the farm shop opened in 1991. And straight away, that wasn't enough. People were still asking, can I get a cup of tea? And my dad, in typical farmer fashion, we have to say, said... Oh, they might be interested in watching the cows because that was the only end of the barn that hadn't been developed and it happened to overlook the milking parlour. So there we were. Uh, a year later, the cafe opened and it overlooks the milking parlour and that's really a big thing that we're known for, that you can come and watch the cows being milked. Well, that's given us a feel for the early days and uh, got this whole enterprise moving. We'll move on to regenerative farming, but of course we need to stretch our legs a little and get away from the road ever more down towards the river. Fascinating to come down on a warm day like today. We've come down a little bit further along the track. There's house martins swirling around us. There's two buzzards wheeling in the sky high above us, 100 feet or more above us. We've got this uh, mixed, diverse pastures beside us and an electric fence passing off into different areas for specific grazing. Part of this whole notion of regenerative farming. What is it all about, Amy? Even Richard's fantastic herbal lays here covers one of the principles of regenerative grazing, which is to grow a more diverse range of crops. So in the fields, we're trying to get away from those monocultures that's quite often spoken about in industrialised farming. So having a more diverse range of crops, keeping the soil covered so not ploughing, looking after the roots... If you're looking after the roots and you've got happy plants, uh, you're going to grow happy animals and healthy soils, healthy roots, healthy plants and healthy animals. There are different principles that people apply to grazing livestock on the land. Um, some people think that they like to eat a third, ruin a third and leave a third, and then they will move them on. Other people have rotational grazing systems where the animals spend a specific amount of time. Other people will measure the grass growth and how much fodder, which is the grass there, is actually left for the animals and then move them on when it reaches a certain height. So there's different ways of actually practising. But what's really, really encouraging is that doing the 40 Farms book, we found 
so many farmers who are already naturally uh, involving principles of regenerative farming in their everyday systems before it became trendy. And, and there is a massive, big movement towards regenerative farming. And it, it does, it, it's a positive way to go. It does help the biodiversity, improves ecological habitats. And Richard, can you describe what's actually in this herbal lay? So a herbal lay is it's a mixture of grasses, of legumes, your clovers and uh, herbs. On a dairy farm you would typically just have perennial ryegrass. So I've got some of that but I've also got some timothy, I've also got some coxfoot and then I've got red and white clover which fix the uh, nitrogen from the atmosphere through the nodules in the roots. And then I've got um, chicory which is a very deep rooting herb that's bringing minerals up from deeper down in the soil profile. It's helping to break up the soil to allow better drainage and aeration. And I've got uh, plantain, uh, very palatable for the cows. On the other side of the cow track that we're stood on, we've got uh, grass and clover lay. That's very good. Uh, but the herbal lay is just like on another level. When you walk through this herbal lay, you just get the insects coming up. We've got uh, spiders' webs. We stood here and we can see the, the swallows and the house martins diving about, and that's what they're doing. They're just harvesting those insects. And of course, in dry weather, with their deep roots, that means you can take full advantage of the water table. It's not usually a problem in, in Cumbria, but uh, we are getting drier summers or we're getting drier spells, aren't we? You know, like two or three, four weeks together. Um, we also have another deep rooting plant in here, which uh, I haven't mentioned, but it's the dock, the farmer's favourite or, or not, perhaps. Um, but the dock, I've learned over this last few years that that's a really good indicator species. That's telling me that I've probably not managed this the best I can. I've probably caused a bit of compaction. Um, that's nature's way of uh, healing that compaction. It opens up the soil, allows the dock seed to get its deep tap root down to break that soil up. And its big leaves are covering that bare soil. But actually the dock, the cows will eat it. Here we have a, a beetle, the dock beetle, which actually eats the leaves of the dock. So it, it looks like a lattice work, doesn't right, it? That's right, yes. So in terms of how you use these allotments of ground, uh, there's a regime you would operate? Yeah, we have fields. So if you can sort of picture a field with a hedge around, and then we subdivide those fields using a single strand of electric wire for the cows, and we call those paddocks. We have 38 paddocks and we rotate the cows around those right through the grazing season, which is from sort of end of March up until the end of October. And depending on the time of year, the cows will go into the paddocks, graze it off, and then it will be left for anywhere from 25 to 40 days before the cows will then re return. It allows faster regeneration, it allows deeper roots, and it's moving the whole paddock towards the, the sort of taller grass grazing that uh, people might have heard of, you know, that mob grazing where, you, where your cattle are going in and the grasses are, you know, nearly up to the cow's bellies. And, an elephant's eye. That's the one, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm moving towards that, but very mindful of that, you know, I'm grazing dairy cows, which are a very high-producing animal and require, you know, really good quality feed, but I feel I can do both. I can have all the benefits of the better quality uh, lay and still maintain that to good production for my cows. So we'll come back to you, Alison, because you've got the business rolling, you've got a cafe, you've sort of got the mix of commercial farm and merchandising. Now, something must have made you make the next move. Did you go to some gathering or other? I saw that there was a conference at Penrith titled 
every family needs a farmer. I just think that's true. We'd heard about the couple that were running it. They had a company that was training people in quite a, what should we call it, fringe, uh, out there philosophy that came out of Southern Africa. Um, A biologist called Alan Savory had created a philosophy of life, how to manage ecosystems called holistic management. And the Every Family Needs a Farmer conference was a way of drawing in people who were looking to widen the scope of the way they ran their farms and really the way they ran their lives. Um, I know that Richard was at a point on the farm where he was wondering where it was all going. Dairying is so cyclical. You know, you have these very, very lean years, good years. You, you change your system, you develop your thinking. We'd been organic for 10 years and then there was a recession and the market collapsed. And I know that Richard's heart was in the organic system but it was it's about how to make a living how to farm the land the way you want to farm it and have a sustainable business and the holistic management seemed to offer something wider than just one aspect of the way you farmed and managed the land and also operated your diversification so we invited Chris and Sheila Cook to come and give us training just the two of us. That was quite a challenge because neither of us had sat down in a room with a flip chart for quite some time. And they asked us really, really difficult questions like, why are you doing this? And what's your purpose? And we got down on our hands and knees and we, we dug holes in the soil and we sniffed it. And we went up onto the fell and we looked at land that had not had any application of nitrogen fertilizer ever and we came back down here and we looked at the way sometimes our our water flow seems to be going backwards up the hill you know there were real there were issues about the soil's water retention and the way the soil had just compacted on the top and what was growing there and what was not growing there Um, it was quite life-changing Dairy had gone through one of its recessions and a particularly bad one, 2014-15. I looked at where we were going and I was offered an organic milk contract. It's something I'd done before. We went for it and one of the reasons for going to the conference was that I didn't want to make the same mistakes I felt I'd made last time we were organic. I got myself in a bit of a corner with it, found it quite difficult to manage. And this philosophy, this holistic management, it's a problem-solving matrix It just made me look at the land with a totally different eye. So we uh, started organic conversion again in uh, 2016, finished in 2019, and uh, things are just progressing very, very, very positively, actually. The soil and the land will tell you all you need, and the animals will tell you all you need to know. They're the indicators. You just need to know what you're looking at and be able to make the decisions from that. One of the themes in your book, which I find quite riveting, is that many farmers have this moment where they say, I think I'm going to do something completely different now. Yeah, I I think that comes from some of the farmers' ability to be curious. 
and to look outside of what's happening exactly on their farm and question what they're doing on the farm and maybe look for something a little bit different to enhance their own landscape just as both Richard and Alison have done here and even on our farm my husband Colin had a pivotal moment where he experienced Uh, a different type of farming approach and thought you know what I think we can do things slightly differently that's better that's more beneficial that helps the landscape that improves uh, the pastures can produce better livestock make us more commercially viable and I think that is all about mindset if you want to be progressive if you want to make change if you want to use these challenges down the line and make them into opportunities to grow your business in farming you need to be able to be curious you need to have that mindset open to change and to think actually i might need to do something different the sun has just taken a a little moment behind a cloud but uh, i think we'll walk a little bit further down and maybe it'll burst upon us again Well, we come onto the brow of a hill in the midst of a pasture, and we're being greeted by a cow who's obviously very friendly. One of a, a large group of 70 cows of various sorts. Before I get to that, I noticed, tucked away the trees, an interesting, well, it looks like a castle or a church or something. Just so little of it I can see. But what is that, Richard? The castle or the church, as you described, belong to the Wakefield family, and they own the uh, gunpowder works which is built just over to our left in in the wooded area and then they used the river kent to power the works and yeah imported the saltpeter up from milnthorpe and then used the charcoal out of the low park wood here it would be a hive of industry in its day a bit of history definitely that's sort of lost now i was going to refer to these cows there's one here 919 just over our shoulder a black and white well i can't Guess what breed it is, because it looks like a Frisian, but it doesn't look like a Frisian. What is it, Richard? My cows are all partly Holstein, partly Scandinavian red, and partly uh, Montbelliard. And looking at uh, looking at this cow here, 919, she'll be uh, Scandinavian red, she will, yes. Norwegian although she's no- black. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> although she's black. She's wearing her... Um, her neck collar with a, a transponder on, which will be recording her movements, uh, how far she walks, a bit like a sort of a cow Fitbit. Right. Um, it will uh, measure her rumination. It will measure how long she rests for. And then when she enters the milking parlour, it will scan her uh, number down onto the, her individual milking point, And then we can record her milk yield. I mean, you've got uh, water troughs in the fields. How much water is involved with a cow's daily life? Quite a lot. I mean, a cow, depending on her, on her milk yield, but a lactating cow will typically drink from anywhere from 80 to 120 litres a day. We just live in just the right area. You know, in, in South Cumbria, we get 55 inches or 1,200 millimetres of rain. It's what makes this such an ideal place for dairying. I mean, even the name Sizer is a a Viking word for uh, summer pasture. So, you know, there's been dairying going on here for a a long, long time. Yeah, you've got names like Buttermere and those sort of names that tell you up in the hills. And here you've got this wonderful landscape that is built on pasture going back hundreds and hundreds of years. It is, yes. Right, Amy, well, let's go back to this uh, really... focal part of today's uh, gathering, the 40 farms. And one of the rather intriguing elements of it, and it's sort of been touched on by 
Richard and Alison, this notion of being in the midst of a landscape that is a peopled landscape, the community element of farming. We cover an awful lot of community in the 40 Farms book and in fact there's one particular story which is quite pertinent from Angus Richardson who farms up at Alston uh, in a farm called Sheep Riggs and he unfortunately lost both of his parents within a very short period of time in his late teens and took on the farm himself on his own and the community completely and utterly pulled together and tightened up around this young lad and we tell his story in photographs of the aunts and uncles that are there every weekend helping him with the paperwork, the best mate that comes every day and helps him with the land work. He's got his cousin that comes over from University of Renican, he's got cleaners, he's got people on the other side of the valley that bring a meal on a Tuesday, someone else brings a meal on a Friday. And the sense of community supporting that young lad to be able to farm is quite extraordinary. And community runs deep within farming, um, just from the pure nature that even with just one farm, there are so many different professions and small businesses and big businesses that rely on our farms, from the vets to the mechanics, the agricultural machines, we've got feed suppliers, and all the employment that goes along with the farms, not just from the associated businesses, but like Alison's got here, and she's mentioned the number of people that are employed, even down here at Low Sizer. And I, I think the sense of community is something that should the uplands particularly and other farming areas decline with the way farming is going, those communities will decline too. This sense of community is very important to you, Alison. Community is really important and then and being part of a network is something my dad used to repeat a lot when the shop was getting started and establishing itself. We're a part of a network, an interdependent network of producers and suppliers and farmers. Um, we're a shop window for a lot of small suppliers that would never dream of retailing direct. So we're dependent on them just as much as they're dependent on us and that extends across our local area and our county and our neighbouring counties. And the idea of food and community is so important mm -hmm. and we've lost that and here we are in this county of Cumbria where there are these amazing, talented food producers and I think over the 30 years that we've had the farm shop Things have been coming round and now more farmers are interested in supplying a local market rather than the commodity market where they're just a figure on a piece of paper losing money and the pride that they put into producing that food, there's no recognition for it. Whereas I can buy in meat, say, from the local butcher in Grange over Sands and he's chosen his stock for butchering and then that comes back to us. It's a very localised network and people know each other and that really matters. And, and it's not something new, like we've had the farm shop for 30 years, but my granddad's uh, used to say, you're just doing it differently because when he was a lad, his mum used to make butter and he left school when he was 14 because he he was the horseman, he was the best with the horses. He'd drive the trap with her butter and her into Kendall and she'd go and sell butter on the butter market and he'd stable the horse. So they were taking their farm produce to the market. And likewise, on my dad's side, they would drive from the farm 
down into Windermere. They were at Bannerig and they'd take liquid milk down into the village, whereas now we've got this high-tech vending machine to sell our organic raw milk on the farm. It's not something new. Farmers have always provided food to their local community. It used to be that every, all the farms brought the commodities to the market town, which was about five miles from wherever you were. I think keeping the food miles low is really, really important, particularly moving forward to where food security is going to be an issue down the line. And I think what Alison's doing here, being able to um, produce an outlet for many of the farms that even we've got in our book, she's got several of the farms from the book actually as suppliers to Alison here, and it enables them massively to be able to cut out the middlemen, make their own farming systems more economically sustainable going forwards with all the challenges that they face. And um, we need to support these local communities and if you don't use it you'll lose it well this has been a fascinating moment on the journey around the farm this ground looks as if it's got another couple of days of grazing uh, but i'm gonna move on and talk about economics now we come down the bank we haven't come far uh, and there's a lovely bit of woodland to our right and uh, we're in a little bit of a hollow, We're just about here, the A591. But that's a lot of people travelling through the area. And it sort of brings my mind to the, the history of recent history of farming. When I was young, uh, my father got a farm and uh, through the war and post-war, it was food for the population. Eventually we joined the common market. The cycle of subsidies started coming in. And we're now in a new age where there's this elm schemes, which are not very clear, but they're going to come in to help fund farming. But the actual costings of farming is such a, an integral thing. Yeah, well, I've got a, a sort of little anecdote mark occasionally and it is one of the joys of having the vending machine is you actually get to talk directly to your customers chap was getting his milk and we were having a bit of a conversation and he said he said why do you do it why do you milk cows why do you bother you know why, why don't you just have the shop and and the cafe and the campsite and you know do all, all that work you have to do for the cows and I said I said, well, I do really, really enjoy it. And it's something sort of family's done for a long time. We get a lot of pleasure out of it. And I said, but does it not sort of concern you a little bit that the person who's producing your food, you know, is finding it quite difficult to actually turn a profit? And I said, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy the business side of the farming, you know, that running a small business, the accounts and the spreadsheets and all that, that's something I, I do enjoy. And uh, it ebbs and flows. You just really need to uh, keep a handle on those costs. And, you know, in dairying, um, I'm trying to have a system that uh, does away with a lot of those sort of external costs. Being organic, I don't buy in any um, fertiliser at all i try and produce as much as i can feed wise for the cow so uh, no, no sprays and no sprays no and um cutting down on the amount of feed we buy so i have a breed of cow and a system that will produce the majority of the milk from forage you know what, what we grow on the farm there's differences between us here today, Mark, in that I come from a farm where we own our own farm and, of course, Richard and Alison here have to pay a tenancy as well on top of the extra costs. 
it's really, really desperately important to look at costs and some farmers do fall down uh, and don't cost all the labour in and the time in. And the change in shifting subsidies is going to force a certain amount of change and it really needs to be taught at sort of graduate, undergraduate level about running farms as businesses and costing everything in. We've um, done the same as Richard and reduced our cost by reducing fertiliser massively thanks to the new rotational grazing. We're able to grow much more feed and put less on the land so it's helped financially considerably. But we've got quite a few farms that I cover in my book that um, are very honest and say that they're farming in a way they feel they ought to farm for the landscape, for nature, for wildlife, and yet they are really struggling to make any money. And when those subsidies are withdrawn completely, what are they going to do? How are they going to manage? And why should these great big landowners kick off the farms and get paid to plant a load of trees? You know, that's not producing food either. So it's going to be challenging future ahead for quite a lot of them. So many farmers have been lured into having large stocking rates, which requires all the paraphernalia of chemicals and fertilisers and so forth. Suddenly, like a great bolt from the blue, they're not going to be able to afford any of that. I just can't see how farmers are not going to make it without a change in the whole system of food production and food purchasing and we talk about subsidy and subsidies coming to an end for farmers which have been a really important part of their annual income but that subsidy is isn't it just a a subsidy to the consumer to the citizen who's making active choices about where they spend their money on food and I know that many of us are a lot more privileged than many others in this broken food system that we can afford to look at where our foods come from and who's made it and who's produced it and what are the ethics and the values that we wanted to go into that food that we're eating and that food is keeping us alive and keeping us nourished and keeping our local area healthy. That's a really important consideration. I I think there's so much opportunity to change the whole market for food and there are quite big organisations working together. There's an organisation called the Sustainable Food Trust which is trying to bring businesses big and small together so that citizens, people who spend their hard-earned money on food can actually see on that food what's gone into its production and that's a really important part of what we're talking about. There was a time, of course, when we had a college, an agricultural college in Cumbria, and that's gone. Yeah, education's definitely the key. It's been more pertinent in, in recent years that the divide between the rural and the urban is stretching and is growing. And we're losing that connection, the producers, with the consumers, and we've got to get it back. Farmers have such a very small voice. They're a minority group. There's 470,000 people employed in this country in farming, fisheries and forestry. So if you take the fishery and forestry out, it's just a very small group of people. Collectively, we don't have a huge voice. Until we can try and educate those voices and get them to the people who are buying our food, where do we go? Well, overnight we've had news of a new Secretary of State of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And if you were in their privy of their ear, what would you, Amy, like them to enact at this particular moment? We could talk for hours about the various farming policies and how they need to change, but I think ultimately 
we need to educate them. I would love them to come and spend a week on our farm and a week on Richard's farm and really understand the nitty-gritty of what's happening on the ground. Not from a little room in London. They are not going to learn anything there. Uh, Richard, have you a thought what you would ask of this new Secretary of State? Tricky one, isn't it? You could ask them all sorts of things. But um, I think as a nation, we've often led the way by example of doing the right thing. And I think we can do this with um, food, you know, with some really good farmers in this country producing food in an environmentally sustainable way. And we should use that example for the world and not have this sort of we seem to be still in this sort of race to the bottom not protect farmers you want protectionism we just want to demonstrate the best ways of farming to feed the population i'd like to go backwards as well as forwards i would like the department of environment food and rural affairs defra to incorporate farming because you don't get any of those things you don't get environment and food and rural affairs without farming. And people. Farming is people. In Cumbria, we've got an amazingly diverse range of farms from the lowlands to the uplands, but across this country, what farming's doing is phenomenal to feed the country. And we can feed the country with the right support. And I mean that across the whole range of financial, social, philosophical, and every other kind of support. We can produce very good food, but DEFRA can't have it both ways. DEFRA can't have excellent food from farms that are held to high standards in this country and then let in global commodities that are produced to whatever standards suit the nation that produces them. That You can't have it both ways, and uh, our th- I think our citizens in this country deserve better Well, we walk a little bit further, uh, up the hill, back towards the farm, and I'll surprise our listeners by our three guests' reaction to quickfire questions. Well, we're getting near the end of our wonderful uh, exploration of this uh, low size of farm, which has been a lovely ramble through the pastures. Wonderful hedgerows. I've loved it wandering through here with trees dappling the hilltops and uh, just a general feeling of well-being in a lovely pastoral landscape. So we're coming to the quickfire questions and I'm going to start with Amy because it's your book and uh, could you give us your first Lakeland memory, Amy? Oh, staying at Keswick Youth Hostel at about 12 um, with the Scouts. And in fact, we used to come over to Keswick Youth Hostel quite often uh, as a family because we didn't have a huge amount of money, but we loved the Lake District and we grew up over in Yorkshire, so we used to come youth hosteling over here. So you were always prepared. Always. Absolutely. (laughs) Can I ask the same question of you, Richard? Uh, I think it was probably when I was at secondary school and... um, probably not my first memory but a memory that really sticks with me and we went camping so some very brave teachers took a group of school children up to Ullswater and we camped there and we walked uh, right up the side of Ullswater and then got the steamer back and that was uh, yeah that was a great memory and uh, that stayed with me and, and now me and my wife love going walking in the lakes. Okay Alison your turn. My memories are of visiting relatives on farms on a Sunday afternoon and it might be a bit impolite to say but 
I remember my granddad picking them up out of his fingernails with his penknife. Oh, that's what I call vivid memories. You can never predict with quick fires. <laughs> we go back to Amy now. Have you got a favourite fell? Um, yeah, I'm rather partial to skidor or skidder, however skidder. you pronounce it. Um, I just love the fact that you can climb up it and then you think you're at the top and you're actually not and you've still got to keep going. Uh, but the views from there are spectacular and it holds a special place in my heart now because the first day of the Christmas holidays, uh, 2021, I managed to get all my three girls up there and they're only little. So it was their first proper Lakeland peak and we had a fantastic day up there. The weather was spectacular. Um, yeah, so that's probably skidder. One of our favourites, um, me and my wife, is uh, Fleetwith Pike. Head of Buttermere there, absolutely iconic. And, and walking up that ridge, it's a, it's a lovely climb. And we just did it a few weeks ago with the, all the heather was out. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. And then we walk uh, round, cross haystacks and drop back down and have a swim in Buttermere. That's just a fantastic day out. It's a lovely walk. Uh, I can't fault you on that. OK, Alison, here you are. Here's your chance to shine on which fell. I'm just going to stay local. I absolutely love Sizerfell. We're right on the boundary of the Lake District National Park. I can just walk up on the fell. I'm in the National Park. It's an awful lot of benefit for very little effort. You get fantastic views right over to the Langdales and you can see the Howgills, you can see Morecambe Bay. Uh, it's a very, very accessible little fell um, for people who perhaps don't have as much mobility as these um, hearty types. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a bit like Hampsfell in its grand setting, perhaps. Yeah, not that I've been up on Sizerfell. Okay, Amy, what's your favourite view? I'm going to be a bit of a nuisance and just say whichever one I happen to be there with my camera because I love the whole of the Lake District. In fact, I just love all of Cumbria. This book has been an absolute pleasure to put together because I found new areas. And as much as I used to really enjoy the nation's favourite view there at Wastwater, and it's still very close to my heart, I think I just love the whole landscape. And if I'm there and I've got the time and my camera, perfect. Richard, have you got a particular view that you love? We're very lucky, you know, we can uh, go up to the lakes and some fantastic views. But I think... You know, the view that I uh, I do enjoy is we have some land on the other side of the road and that's a little bit higher. And when I'm uh, going checking the stock and moving fences and, uh, you know, you shift the fence and let the cattle out onto a new piece of grass, you can just stand there and you can see a long, long way right out to Falton, not right out to Morecambe Bay, and then right up into the Lake District. So, uh, yeah, my favourite view is probably uh, from my own farm. Alison, have you got a particular view that you absolutely adore? A bit like Amy, mine, mine changes depending on where I am and what the weather's like. I was just very recently up at the top of Kentmere and I had one of those times when I had to just stand and be still and look and take it all in. And behind me, going over towards Horswater, there were a group of fell ponies running about. There were herdwicks on the mid fell and then down in the bottom the fields and the pasture land there's little settlements houses and farmsteads there's woods it was so so beautiful and just really just said a lot about this being a farmed landscape you felt hefted in that setting that's it richard have you got a bit of food that you love being a dairy farmer, I think it's got to be cheese. I really enjoy my cheese. And uh, there are some fantastic cheeses, uh, Cumbrian cheeses. And uh, I have been known, you know, to eat a bit of Yorkshire and Lancashire as well. You know, we, we, just, uh, we just live in a great area for, uh, you know, a dairying area producing, you know, uh, lots of really, really good cheese.
Uh, you, Alison? We're, we're looking at food just in these hedgerows, aren't we? There's elderberries, there's blackberries, and we've been picking in the orchards. Here we are at uh, early September, so it's damson time. But a damson and apple crumble, that just beats it for me. With some Lakeland ice cream or custard or cream, should I say? Yeah. Well, in fact, we have a very good ice cream maker based at Windermere who uses the toppest, toppest quality milk from Low Sizer Farm to make his ice cream. <laughs> oh, the ultimate. Wow. And finally, uh, we'll go back to you, Alison, because uh, we've got in that cycle. Could you describe your perfect Lakeland day? Is this a day when I'm not working, where I am working? You can be working and loving it to bits. Every day I love working. I love working on the farm. But let's say I'm having a day off. My perfect Lakeland day would involve a good breakfast, which I would make probably, and it would involve getting on my bike and going exploring. I like to go somewhere new. I like quiet lanes and I like long distances. Cake stops are essential and if I can call in on a friend somewhere that makes it wonderful. You feel part of the ingrained landscape. Fabulous. Amy, have you caught a perfect Lakeland day? Oh, it would have to be a very long day. Uh, probably start with catching sunrise up from uh, Latrig with my um, camera uh, on the lower banks of Skiddaw. Looking down over Keswick as the finger of lights creep in. Then head down to the filling station cafe on the edge of Keswick for a really good fry-up breakfast. All those motorbikes. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, because it's a perfect day, my husband would be childminding. And <laughs> he would then, uh, we'd probably uh, drive through to Allswater, meet him there with the children and we'd probably spend the rest of the day having a picnic on the shores of Allswater and paddle boarding until the sunset. Richard, have you a perfect Lakeland day? It could be working on the farm. Working on the farm is what I spend uh, the vast majority of my time doing. Things on a farm uh, do occasionally all come right so it's very depending on the weather. So it's summertime, we cut the grass for silage and um, if the weather forecast is right and, you, and you've got that beautiful smell of drying grass and you get that uh, harvested in the pit and then, then that's that's such a satisfying feeling you know you're sort of safe for winter I think it's in your in your genes that uh, you know you've got to have enough food for your animals to carry them through the winter it's once described as like a, a lifeboat that to me you know, that being able to just enjoy have the pleasure in the work that I do Journey's End, we're back in the car park at Low Sizer Farm slash barn. Fascinating wonder mark, lovely to see all their wildlife friendly parts of the farm, but also talk much more widely about finances of farms and challenges and opportunities. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? You're with the people who are really involved with it, and that always is the difference between going to a shop and buying food and going to a farm and sharing the nitty-gritty of actually producing good grazing, good herbage, seeing the stock and seeing how the stock rotate around the farm, looking at the tidy order of the place and the chaos of the place because it's got wonderful hedgerows that are being allowed to become nature-friendly environments. So you have such a wonderful mosaic of interest there. 
Richard made the point that there were all these insects flying above their augmented herbal lay. A herbal lay being a meadow, just to be clear to listeners. It was true, it was chalk and cheese. You look one side of the track, there was no movement of any little invertebrates or little flying beasties. Did you notice those two buzzards were above that particular pasture? This was what Richard said and he was right. Uh, We should say so we're at Low Sizer Barn just off the A591. I'm sure many if not all listeners will know of it. Fabulous place to stop for. Uh, The cakes in particular Mark are fabulous. A bit bit too fabulous. Yeah I might uh, partake. Uh, And the book in question is called 40 Farms uh, and you can buy that on my website, which is inspiredbylakeland.co.uk. That's inspiredbylakeland.co.uk. But if you just do a Google search for 40 farms, you'll be able to read more about that. Uh, we're on episode number... 88, would you believe? Gosh, Ooh. just a dozen and we'll be there. Oh, goodness, right. Three figures. For all previous episodes, dot countrystride.co.uk we are on social media oh countrystride1 facebook and twitter uh, if you'd like to support us one of three ways firstly you can just recommend us to your friends and family pass on the word about countrystride you can also buy any one of our guidebooks there are now four in our little series of guidebooks including the Oldswater Walking Companion Threlkeld Walking Companion Oldswater Way Official Guide and Dr Penny Bradshaw's very lovely Ambleside Literary Tour and the third way for as little as £2 a month which is less than the price of a Uh, less than a a bag of organic crisps locally produced you can support us which helps fund our server costs so that we can maintain these podcasts and now we did have some correspondence Mark from a gentleman called Andy Stavely from Western Australia right he wanted to take advantage of your knowledge of place names. Yeah, he wanted to know what home rook, what was the origin of that name. You might assume it's something to do with rooks or crows or something, but it isn't. The home of the rooks. Yeah, but it isn't. Oh. No. Uh, in 1659, it was called Home Crook. Home is a slightly raised meadow beside a river. The river there is a the river Ert, and Crook is a bend. Yeah. So it's a raised meadow on the crook of the bend of the River Ert. Rather like just up the road here is Water Crook, south of Kendal, which is the actual Roman fort there, which is Media Bogdum, which means exactly the same. And of course the Crookaloon. Crookaloon. Refers to exactly the same thing, doesn't it? The Crookaloon. There's two Crookaloons, actually. There are. Right, well, I think that's enough from us today on this uh, wander through an extraordinary Cumbrian farm as part of our launch celebrations of... 40 farms. <laughs>